Good evening, and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim DeWire. And, uh, oh, can you say perfect day? <laughs> it's a little warm, but it's uh, damn fine weather. Perfect day in my book. Just uh, comfortably hot in the sun and pretty uh, comfortable in the shade. A little bit of both worlds. Well, I'll leave it to Mr. Bush on the uh, 25th anniversary of the uh, first uh, notification in the scientific community of of AIDS, or HIV, although at the time they didn't know what to call it. Back then it was called GRID. Uh, The president would uh, go off onto the gay marriage amendment. Incredible. We'll give him a brain damage award for everything involved in that whole... uh, public relations uh, attempt to change the subject. Well, and to play to uh, what remains of his core element of supporters. Apparently, the uh, hard uh, religious right, um, emotionally cold, mentally enfeebled, uh, driven by faith, and uh, this is all he has left to cling to. So, sure. Why not? Yeah, you had to love a story. I didn't bring it in, but a story of voters in Utah that uh, is one of the only, it's one of three states where Bush's approval ratings are above 50%. And even there, his disapproval ratings were astonishingly 46%. But leave it to two uh, married women to say that they admired the president because he was honest. I was like, what? And another one said, oh, I like the president because he's God-fearing. He's a good Christian man. Absolutely amazing. Well, apparently those people are unfamiliar with the actual tenets of Christianity. Yeah, these are people that want the uh, Ten Commandments posted at the courthouse, but uh, don't want anyone actually to read them or pay attention to them or follow them. Or it's it's another example of uh, what my wife Mars calls the uh, Old Testament Christians who call themselves Christians, but who seem to really uh, talk more about the very, well, almost dictatorial uh, religious guidelines uh, as laid out in the uh, early works of the Old Testament, the Deuteronomy and all that sort of uh, legal code issues. Um, Christianity's uh, greatest uh, tenet, of course, is the uh, Sermon on the Mount, you know, blessed are the meek. Forgiveness, forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera, all the compassionate stuff. Well, and they've but done, no. yeah, and they've done polls that show that even a lot of people that actually attend church and supposedly read the Bible can't even 
don't even know important uh, quotes from the Bible uh, or what they mean. Well, all you have to do is, is look at any uh, church or temple parking lot after the service, and you'll realize that all the teachings are for naught. Indeed. It's... But they do have those magnetic ribbons on their SUVs that say, support the troops. Well, uh, this is the uh, 25th anniversary of the article that appeared in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report of the Centers for Disease Control. I don't know if you saw the uh, Frontline special that they had last week on PBS, but that was actually a a fairly uh, outstanding uh, two-part series about the AIDS epidemic, and of course the numbers are mind-boggling. And I, just by coincidence, and would recommend, by the way, that the, the first uh, part is, is uh, maybe the superior presentation because it shows the myopia uh, of the initial American response to the epidemic. And uh, the numbers are staggering. And just by coincidence, last night I was watching a repeat of it. I hadn't seen all of it last week because of baseball uh, games, etc., <laughs> Unfortunately, we went to the Wednesday night Yankee game that uh, had a two-hour rain delay, and that was uh, quite an experience. But uh, by coincidence, they had another um, PBS show on uh, the the Flint station, the U of M uh, Flint station, that actually I thought had some amazing uh, connections to the uh, AIDS epidemic that are rarely talked about in the media. The uh, title of this show, by the way, was uh, Secrets of the Dead. That was actually about the Black Death and the bubonic plague and how in, I believe, 1347, a ship arrived in Genoa, Italy, that uh, basically was a death ship Mm -hmm. and had uh, rats aboard that uh, carried these fleas that spread the uh, so-called Black Plague throughout an enormous chunk of Europe. Yeah, it worked its way uh, northwards over the next uh, 80 years, wiping out of over a third of the population. Yeah. Um, in some areas, uh, the mortality rate was close to 100%. Yep. And at the time, it was just absolutely astonishing. Of course, back then, people didn't know how disease was spread. Uh, many people thought it was connected to sin, eternal sin, etc., but what was interesting was a uh, basically an epidemiologist, a geneticist, encountered a, a village in England called uh, IAM, <laughs> E-Y-A-M, that apparently had been uh, infected by the bubonic plague, also known as the pneumonic plague because the disease spreads uh, both from direct flea bites and also from people that are infected that are either exposed uh, to sores or the pneumonic plague, which is actually the breath, Mm -hmm. and it's actually why this disease was so deadly. What was fascinating about this little village, IAM, or EAM, I guess was how they pronounced it, was that they were were north of, of London, and I don't know the exact year when, the plague arrived in London, but it eventually made its way to London. And, of course, it devastated an enormous number of people there. But apparently a uh, tailor 
received some, uh, some garment from London in the stagecoach, so to speak, that was actually infected with uh, the fleas. And this is how this little village contracted the plague. Well, they were quarantined in this village for over a year, and they had a kind of an interesting story about how food was dropped off at the edge of the village, and people left money, and uh, they actually were quarantined in this little village. Well, anyway, there were a few survivors from the village a year later, and as it turned out, there's apparently a gene mutation, uh, a thing called Delta 32, and uh, rather than go into all the scary details of of genetics, uh, we'll just say that it was a gene mutation that allowed some people to survive. Basically, people that had two copies of the gene completely survived, and they focused on a particular woman whose entire family was uh, killed by the plague. She lost all of her children and her husband, but she survived and later married, and because this village remained fairly inbred, to use a... Uh, <laughs> As was typical in the time period, where yeah. people you know, rarely traveled beyond their village. This gene, um, this mutated gene that actually provided immunity from the Black Plague survived. And they eventually, of course, linked this Delta 32 gene to various people in this village that survived. And, of course, there were other areas where people survived the plague. But what was interesting was, and the link to the uh, AIDS epidemic, was they found a uh, a gay uh, man that lived in San Francisco during the incipient stages of the AIDS epidemic in which basically all of his friends, including his boyfriend, died from AIDS. And it turned out that he has this same gene. Uh, the symptoms of the bubonic plague are very similar to... Um, what ultimately kills you with AIDS, the sores, the uh, wasting away, um, the profound thirst, the permanent headaches, and then this uh, very pernicious pneumonia um, that ultimately kills people. So what was interesting was here was a, a gay man who had basically lived the gay lifestyle in San Francisco, was... As, as shall, I mean, he admitted that he had done all of the things that his friends had done. But he it turned out that his blood actually had this gene mutation that prevented him from getting AIDS completely. And then they took samples of his blood and could not infect him with the HIV wow. virus. So this is a fascinating um, sort of... Side story about, you know, the, the, the frontline presentation about the AIDS epidemic that I think demonstrates why um, perhaps gene therapy is ultimately the way this cure, if there will be such a thing, uh, will be found. And, of course, it also underscores why this is so scary. Apparently, only uh, people of northern European genetic background have this mutated gene. And, unfortunately, African... Um, Africans and Asians have no immunity whatsoever. There are some people, by the way, that have half of a copy of this mutated gene, and they tend to get symptoms but not die. Well, this actually mirrors uh, many of the um, AIDS uh, situations around the world. Some people 
get the symptoms, um, but have a sufficient number of white blood cells because essentially what the AIDS virus does is it affects the T4 helper cells in the uh, immune system. And, of course, the bubonic plague affects the, the lymph nodes as right. well. And there's m- huge swelling in, in this area. And uh, the symptoms are almost identical. So to me, it's a, it was a fascinating side story that demonstrates to me why the when you hear these numbers, you know, that 30 million people globally have already died, over 200,000, by the way, here in America, and uh, that 70 million, 70 to 75 million are currently infected, and that in some African countries they're treating as many as 50,000 people. But, for instance, in a country like South Africa where um, 40,000 people are being treated under the global AIDS uh, program under uh, WHO and the United Nations program, uh, uh, a uh, program, by the way, that the United States government gives about a billion dollars a year to out of the $15 billion that was pledged recently by President Bush. Uh, you can see why this uh, epidemic uh, as Bush even calls it, a pandemic, is so frightening with almost no um, chance of a vaccine being um, developed any time soon because the doctors point out that this AIDS, um, HIV virus, is an incredibly adaptable uh, retrovirus that is able to coat itself in basically sugar molecules in the body, and the immune system cannot attack it because it's coated and it essentially hides out and then of course gets a uh, a ride through the bloodstream into the uh, affected uh, areas that cause these uh, symptoms that ultimately cause death and it's just an amazing story um, and one that I wish the media would focus a little bit more on these people that actually have genetic uh, immunity to the HIV virus, and this is why I would theoretically believe that in the future some sort of gene therapy will be the way to go. And, of course, it's it's just staggering when you see some of the, the numbers. For instance, a country like Brazil, which has been denied money by the American government because some of their programs work with prostitutes, and, of course, the Bush administration has all of these moral uh qualms with various countries' AIDS programs. And it's uh, a sad situation because uh, education is the only way to make this thing work. And globally, of course, women are being devastated by the... uh, And children. And children are being devastated in the developing world, which is basically where 95% of all new cases are occurring. Just for the record, by the way, in America, and then I'll sort of wrap this up and we can move on to some other subjects... Um, and fascinatingly, by the way, just a, a week and a half ago, there was an article published uh, in the New York Times, basically courtesy of uh, one of these scientific journals that's identified the chimpanzee, this uh, so-called um, pan-trogdolite, trogdolite, a subspecies of chimpanzees that lives in the wild out in uh, the Cameroon the Congo and uh, Gabon, it's got a range, and apparently most of the sort of theoretical speculation about the origin of AIDS is that the simian 
immune virus jumped from chimpanzees to humans sometime within sometime between 1930 and 1950 there's the first documented death from HIV by the way at least in terms of blood uh, pathology and you know specimens that they've preserved is actually a person that lived in Zaire or the Belgian Congo who died in 1959 hmm. And it's speculated that a human being, probably a hunter of chimpanzees, basically a bush hunter, somehow contracted the um, simian virus and then spread it by going down one of these rivers uh, from the Cameroon-Gabon area. Um, The article notes that a river um, floats into the uh, Congo River, which is how it got to Kinshasa. Uh, which is where this person died. And, of course, there's all sorts of very nefarious um, programs that both America and Israel's military-industrial complexes had going in this area of the world during the Cold War. So this gene mutation, by the way, may actually have been related even to possibly nuclear technology or even uranium mining. One one doesn't know. But uh, this jump of species from the simian immune virus to the um, human immune virus is, is, is how this virus got started. And these chimpanzees were studied in uh, this area. And some of the communities of chimpanzees, by the way, had astonishingly high rates of simian immune virus. These um, chimpanzee communities, and they live apparently in little groups out in the woods, and as uh, Beatrice Hahn, who was featured in the front line, or one of the one of the people in the front line documentary, puts it, you can hear them but not see them. Um, they live recursively in remote areas of the jungle. But of course, indigenous tribal people in these areas unfortunately uh, hunt these chimpanzees for meat. Mm-hmm. And it's speculated, of course, that this is how the virus jumped. It was basically a blood-on-blood contact. It got into the human uh, population this way. There are other theories, by the way, including um, the astonishing fact that many of the WHO um, vaccine programs in Africa throughout the 60s and 70s very well could have spread AIDS throughout huge swaths of population because needles were repeatedly used to vaccinate children against diseases like polio, etc. And uh, one will never know probably how, you know, where the so-called smoking gun is on all of this, but it's an astonishing story, and we know what works. And, of course, we know that the Bush administration and the Reagan administration in particular have were very incompetent in understanding what to do in which... Um, political right-wing pressure prevented things like condom programs, needle exchange programs. They actually had a documented story about how the British uh, public health minister uh, instituted needle exchange programs in uh, England and Scotland to uh, greatly reduce the spread of the HIV virus, whereas these programs in America were made illegal. Because of the sinful nature of the human behaviors. uh, Exactly. And uh, America still has no um, national needle exchange program. And, of course, nationally, when you look at the statistics, um, 
of who now is infected of the estimated 1 million Americans, 47% are African American, 34% are white, 30, uh, 17% are Hispanic, 2% are Asian, Pacific Island, etc., and uh, 45% are gay men. 27% are infected by heterosexual contact, and this, of course, in most cases, are women that are uh, infected as a result of contact with H, uh, IV drug users. And then 22% are supposedly exclusively from uh, injecting uh, um, drugs. So this is where programs have got to be um, designed and promoted and supported and right-wing opposition to education programs globally and even here in the United States uh, remain one of the disgraces of modern government government's reaction to this epidemic. Admittedly, in the early years, there were many things that a lot of people didn't know, but it is astonishing that Ronald Reagan uh, gave his first speech on AIDS and his only speech on AIDS, almost five years after, uh, actually almost six years after this uh, study appeared in the uh, Journal of Morbidity and Mortality of the Centers for Disease Control. And by the way, at the time, they were confronted with massive budget cuts, courtesy of the Reagan administration, that hampered their ability to study the science of what was going on. And, of of course, because many of the victims were uh, poor uh, gay men and uh, people of African descent one way or another, because there was this interesting connection to Haiti. Haiti. And Haiti, as the documentary pointed out, was used as a a country early on uh, when the Congo declared independence because Haitians had uh, French-speaking ability. Mm They were actually used in the in the Congolese government in many administrative and health positions. So the connection between Haiti and the Congo is clear cut. This is how the AIDS virus spread to Haiti, and of course, unfortunately, Haiti also, because it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, had a, a sort of gay tourist thing going on in the late seventies and early eighties. This is how it spread into the French, American, Belgian. Um, gay community and uh, why and how the disease was so um, how it spread so um, quickly and vociferous well <laughs> viciously and it's a staggering that a, that a person like Arthur Ashe died as a result of the unwillingness and the inexcusable conduct of the American government that knew for a fact that the blood supply was spreading HIV early on in the epidemic, but these blood corporations connected to the Reagan administration refused to do anything and refused to say, well, we don't have enough science uh, to support some of these theories, did nothing, and scaringly, by the way, many of these blood products were actually exported abroad to places like Africa. Um, It's an amazing story, and of course it continues to be part of our... uh, well, it'll be part of our lives for the rest of our lives. Well, that's another example of how a, an alleged moral agenda can mask what's actually a business agenda. Um, the the Reagan administration's indifference to homosexuals, Haitians, hemophiliacs, and heroin users uh, 
you know, as a matter of, of record, um, and to have completely ignored the, you know, the growing crisis uh, for the number of years is entirely uh, irresponsible, but sadly not a surprise. And of course, the amazing other thing about Reagan's first speech was he had never actually talked to C. Everett Koop, his Surgeon General about what was going on, even though he was actually out there trying to do something. Right. He'd never been briefed. He was completely clueless. He didn't believe in any of the science because he had these little minion White House staffers that told him told him that he couldn't uh, say the magic words. And amazingly, in his uh, May 31st, 1987 speech, this is his first actual speech in which he mentions anything about what was going on, he doesn't mention either abstinence or condoms. Instead, he announces a policy in which um, he's going to change immigration policy regarding HIV status. He's going to keep them out of the country. And, of course, Elizabeth Taylor had, uh, or after the death of Rock Hudson, somebody that he personally knew, Ronald Reagan, that is, mm-hmm. um, actually uh, got him to be a keynote speaker. And this is when he made this incredible <laughs> gaffe. And there was a round of boos to, to what he was saying because it demonstrated once again that Ronald Reagan, the so-called great communicator, uh, was communicating nothing. Indeed. Well, scary numbers. And like you say, it's not going away. Speaking of scary numbers, this is an item that uh, I wanted to fit in last week. It's not really specifically related numbers per se, but since last week was Memorial Day, and of course the conflagration in Iraq uh, continues to uh, (laughs) go nowhere, uh, this was a really bizarre little item that uh, was printed in May 27th's Ann Arbor News uh, involving good old Henry Kissinger. Uh, Henry Kissinger quietly acknowledged to China in 1972 that Washington could accept a communist takeover of South Vietnam if that evolved after a withdrawal of U.S. troops, even as the war to drive back the communists dragged on with mounting deaths. President Nixon's envoy told uh, Chinese Premier Zhu Enlai, quote, if we can live with a Chinese, uh, excuse me, if we can live with a communist government in China, we ought to be able to accept it in Indochina, close quote. Kissinger's blunt remarks surfaced in a collection of papers from his years of diplomacy released Friday by George Washington University's National Security Archive. So you want to talk about government indifference. (laughs) You want to talk about supporting the troops. Here's a little mud in your eye. Uh... How many American dead in Vietnam? Well, over 58,000, and, and <laughs> half of them occurred during the Nixon-Kissinger years. Right. And, of course, 72 was after the summit with China. Um, so the, the United States engaged in the famous Christmas bombing. Right, you know. right, of the, the neutral countries <laughs> in the region. So, my goodness, if we were willing to live with a communist South Vietnam, communist Vietnam, what was it all for? Well, keep asking yourself. Uh, keep asking yourself, and of course, remember the famous uh, words of, of, of General Giap, Ho Chi Minh's right-hand man, who uh, warned America in 1964, uh, when the war was oh. just beginning to start, yeah. that, uh, as he put it, uh, this is our country. We've lived here for 2,500 years. You Americans have been here for 20 we will outlast you. 
Now, this fundamental concept of guerrilla warfare or resistance to an occupation is the modus operandi that's currently at play in Iraq. It's the same thing. Yep. And it's well established that even a madman like Saddam Hussein had studied uh, the way in which China and Vietnam had created uh, resistance to occupation, successful resistance to occupation. America has had enormous difficulty with these occupations in Asian countries. It continues not to learn these lessons, and it's uh, unfortunate that President Bush, uh, Tony Blair at least, acknowledged that this was one grave mistake that they had made. But, of course, Bush uh, will only admit to verbal uh, mistakes. Shouldn't have said bring them on. Shouldn't have said it. Which indeed is correct. He should not have said that, but there's a lot of other things he he should not have done. And he should have realized that uh, this was going to happen, and this is what all the intelligence said would happen, but Cheney and uh, Rummy uh, said it wouldn't, and he believed them because he doesn't know anything. And he's going to stick with them. So Stay the course. There you go. He's made the bed, and we all have to sleep in it. Um, it's uh, 7 o'clock straight up. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We, it looks like we have a little extra time on Gray Matters tonight. As uh, an item in today's Financial Times, apparently uh, there will be some uh, arms uh, spending in Pakistan. They are poised to raise defense spending by 11%. And one of the incentives is, uh, according to a Pakistani official, quote, over the years we have been told by Western governments that we have to reduce our dependence on nuclear. Expanding our conventional force is the perfect way to achieve that. Well, uh, gee, that's uh, encouraging, uh, I suppose, but uh, coming from a country that's essentially run by its army and its uh, intelligence agency, uh, this is a scary development in a region that is already uh, poised on the edge of a broader conflict than simply the U.S. occupation of uh, Iraq. Well, and and the growing problem in Afghanistan is something that finally uh, the American media is is talking a little bit about. And what's interesting, of course, is that there isn't a single American television network that's got any sort of correspondent Mm -hmm. in Afghanistan covering what's going on there. Um, Very few newspapers have anybody covering what's going on there. So it's it's an, uh, a situation recently where it's very clear that the Taliban uh, is back uh, on the resurgence, and the Bush administration just seems to be 